right, good morning. If you have a Bible, let's go Hebrews chapter 1. I want to say, uh, one, our BIBLE fundraiser was a huge success. Um, FC Cubed takes the fun out of fundraising. Um, so you just kind of ask for the money and it's there. Uh, I said one sentence in both services and we more than doubled what we needed. Uh, so we have it. I think next week we're going to start up a new fundraiser for a jet, um, which will take us a little bit longer, hopefully. Uh, just something to, I don't know. I'm just bored. So no PowerPoint up behind me this morning that could be a veiled power play uh, to get you to bring a Bible uh, or Bible underneath your seat. There you go. Yeah, we're in Hebrews 1 this morning. A uh, real interesting passage uh, if you were able to read over it beforehand. Uh, we started off the series last week, um, and, and we kind of knew going forward that as we went, um, we were going to face some passages that were going to be a little tough um, while we're here. Uh, and so we'll do our best to work through this this morning and see what the text has to say to us. I think a big part of being a wise person, like just being a, a mature grown-up, is being able to tell the difference between an important message and, and a message that's not important. Um, so, like, there are some messages and offers and statements that deserve our time and deserve our attention, deserve our thoughts, deserve our efforts. And then there are some that, that don't. I mean, it would just be a waste of time. It's, it's pointless. It's useless to, to do that. And I think the ability to distinguish between what is an important message and what needs to be listened to and then what's not an important message, that's, that's just a huge thing to learn um, in an effort to be a mature, healthy, uh, responsible adult. Um, so, I mean, we all – email has taught us this, Right? I mean, we all have these filters with email where we automatically decide, is this an important message or is this not? So at least once a week, I get an email from the son of a dead king in Africa who wants to transfer like $12 million over to my account. Um, and, and you just kind of learn. I mean, email has taught us that's not an important message. Um, well, earlier this week, uh, I got an email saying um, I could order a big banner for the church for one cent. Um, and now normally, I would spam that. I mean, that's not an important message. Filter comes up. But it was from a friend that I, I really trusted, a friend who does ministry, um, who, who never sends me junk and who um, said, you know, I've done this before. That last time they did this offer, I did it. We got a, a thing. So um, sometimes there's different factors that play in on whether a message is important enough to be listened to and to be paid attention to and to follow through. I mean, if you trust the person who it's coming from. I mean, so, I mean, we've got a banner in the mail for a cent. Uh, now, shipping was like $49. Um, no, <laughs> I was talking to, I think it was Chris, he was like, how much is shipping? It's like, it's just regular, it's just a cent. Uh, and so the, the text this morning is going to be real concerned with making sure that you and I pay attention to the most important message that's ever been given to us. That, that we're not distracted by other secondary or, or even wrong messages. Um, that we have our full, undivided attention on um, what God has spoken through Jesus. So if you remember from last week, because we started off Hebrews... Um, the, the, the book said that God has spoken in his son. So in the past, in all these different ways, he's spoken to us. He's, he's in conversation with his people through the prophets, um, through the angels, he says. And then he says, but now in these last days, in this time of fulfillment, he has spoken through the son. And he, he talks about the son. He's um, the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the king. He's the, the son. He's spoken. And now the text is going to say, it's an important message. I mean, there's not a more important message than what God has said through the Son. And so he's going to make this argument that the Son's message is important. He's going to do so by comparing Jesus to angels. Um, now, this is a little bit foreign to us, and, and this is going to be where the work has to be done. Um, we don't talk a lot about angels. 
Um, now, a few years ago, a while back, angels were kind of um, popular in evangelicalism. Uh, you have Billy Graham write his book about angels, um, and so it was getting a lot of talk and a lot of attention. Uh, we, don't, we don't talk a whole lot about angels. Um, and particularly, he's going to make an argument in a real Jewish way that's going to seem real foreign to us, um, almost like it's an answer to a question we didn't have. Um, and so, I mean, we understand it and we go, that's, that's great, that's a great answer, but we never had the question. Um, but he's going to argue that Jesus is better than angels, and because of that, his message needs to be listened to. That because of that, it needs to be taken with seriousness. And we need to devote our lives to listening to what God has said and is saying through Jesus. Now, the reason he, he, he's going to go off um, for the next few verses about angels and talking about angels and Jesus compared to the angels um, is because in, in Jewish history, as you look throughout Jewish history at all the different ways God has spoken, one event, one moment kind of stood out from the rest. And that was when God gave the law at Mount Sinai. It, it was kind of, they considered the most important message that God had spoken to them. So God saves the Israelites. They are in Egypt as slaves. He comes and says, I've heard your cry. I'm saving you. I'm freeing you. And so then this is salvation. In fact, the first time you see the word salvation is in Exodus 15, a song right after the Israelites are freed from Egypt. When we think of salvation, we think of the cross. When they thought of salvation, they thought of the Exodus. We were slaves, now we're not. We've been taken out of Egypt. We've been freed, we've been saved. And shortly after coming out of Egypt, God led them to a wilderness in Sinai. And he led Moses up to a mountain. And on that mountain, he gave them the law. He gave them Ten Commandments. And we know the Ten Commandments. If you have any Sunday school background, you know the Ten Commandments. I always want to say, the Ten Commandments are not like arbitrary rules to keep us from having fun. I mean, this is God saying... This is how life should work. It works better if you don't murder each other. It works better if you don't cheat on each other. This is how life works as my people. And the Jews, I mean, we always want to emphasize, they love the law. I mean, this, to us, it seems like an oppressive, harsh thing. And we want to push back against it. We don't like it. But they, I mean, wrote love songs about it. This was God's precious, beautiful gift to them, that he would speak and show them what life should look like. So you have the Ten Commandments. And then you have just an extended period of what we'll call case laws, which is just ways that the Ten Commandments should work themselves out in everyday life. Uh, so about altars and justice and all kinds of things. Um, now, with the law given from God to creation came punishments. So the law was a very serious thing. And if you disobeyed, there were very serious punishments. I want to read you uh, three here. It's from Exodus 21. You can turn there. You don't have to. Exodus 21, I'll pick up in verse 15. Listen to these punishments. Whoever strikes his father or his mother, whoever hits, hits one of their parents, shall be put to death. So no time out. I mean, the eternal time out, right? Put to death. 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, so, so trafficking, slavery, things like that, shall be put to death. There's a lot of death penalty in the law. Listen to this one, verse 17. This is my favorite. Whoever curses or dishonors, embarrasses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Uh, so, parents, this is what we call the trump card. Um, I'm just saying, poster, put it on their room. Put it on the, on the wall of their room. A lot of fights end, I think, before they started at that point. Um, but, there, I mean, this was a serious, serious, serious thing to them. Um, they saw this beautiful, precious gift from God, and it was an important message to them. So, so in their mindset, in their view, as they're looking at what's important, what's not, what needs to be paid attention to, what doesn't need to be paid attention to, the law was an important message that needed to be paid attention to. Now, this is not in our Old Testament, but throughout history, 
um, Jewish tradition had come to believe and come to state that the law was given from God to creation through angels. And so different um, Jewish literature would talk about the angel of presence who took the law from God and gave it to Moses or, or a host of angels. Um, we don't have this in our Old Testament, um, but this is the assumption he's going to be making here in Hebrews. But we do see in the New Testament, um, New Testament authors and figures who assume this and talk about this idea. Um, so in Acts 7, Stephen, our first Christian martyr, is making a speech right before he's stoned. And he says this, Acts 7, I'll pick up in verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? When they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And listen, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Here you have this idea. The law was given to God's people from God to man through angels. Um, in Galatians 3, Paul references it. Verse 19, he's talking about the law and promises and faith. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels. It was put in place through angels. So angels to Jewish people, this book is written to Jewish Christians, held a very high, very honored place. When you're talking about how God has spoken to his people, I mean, they were right up there. This is the most important message he ever delivered, and he did it through angels, these divine messengers. Well, now the author of Hebrews is going to make an argument for the importance of the message that God spoke through Jesus by looking at the Old Testament and saying, he's better than the angels. He's greater than the angels. And so he's going to list off seven Old Testament texts talking about how Jesus is so much greater than the angels. And it's really just going to get him ready to, in chapter 2, launch into this urgent plea for his hearers to listen and to not ignore and to, to pay attention with everything that they've got. Um, so we'll pick up in verse 5. Uh, he has just said in verse 4 that the Son has become superior to angels. He has a name that's more excellent than theirs. And then in verse 5 he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the first reason Jesus is greater than the angels is that his name and status as God's unique son, as God's son, is better than, than theirs. We'll see in a minute, the angels are just messengers, they're just servants. But Jesus is the son. He quotes two passages here. Um, psalm 2, which we talked about last week, a psalm about a king who would come, whom God would install in power and authority. Um, but in the psalm, the, the God or God talks about the king and says, not only will you reign, but you're my son. There's a special, unique relationship there. And the second passage he quotes from 2 Samuel 7, um, which Nathan the prophet is talking to King David, uh, giving a message from God. And he says, uh, your son, one who will come, will reign forever, will build my temple. And he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And here's the question Hebrews asks. What angel has he said that about? I mean, what angel has God stepped down and said, You and you alone are my son. I have begotten you. I will be to you a father. You will be to me a son. The answer is, is none. I mean, there's not an angel who's received that. There's not an angel that God has said that to. Now, in the Old Testament, two or three places, um, angels are called the sons of God, plural. But they're never set apart with this unique status. 
And so the author says the first thing that separates Jesus from the angels is he has this intimate relationship with the Father, where the Father looks down on him like you and I would look at our son, flesh of flesh, blood of blood, and say, this is my son who I love, who I'm pleased with. I'm a father to him. He's a son to me. And then he keeps going in, in verse 6 here. He says this, Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says that all God's angels worship him. Um, the Son is greater than angels because they actually worship the Son. Um, they bow down before him and praise him. This is a quotation um, from what we call the Hymn of Moses, um, which is found in Deuteronomy 32. Now, if you look at the original quotation in Deuteronomy 32, um, you probably won't find this phrase um, because he's quoting from the Greek Bible, which is a lot different than the Hebrew Bible, which you and I have in our Old Testaments. Um, so just in case you're looking that up, that's why you might not find it there. Um, but the, the idea here is he's saying the son from way back when Moses was praising was called the one whom the angels themselves would bow down to. I mean, if, if, if you were to worship me, like if you were to bow down in front of me and worship me and write a song about me, Mike makes everything glorious. Uh, I mean, that would put me in a special status over you, right? I mean, there's some supremacy there. There's some elevation there. He's saying that's, that's how you should think of the sun and the angels. The angels worship him. They praise him. He keeps going in, in verse 7 here. Of the angels, he says, so now this is what God says about the angels. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So there's where angels worship the sun. Um, they're just simply God's servants. I mean, they're his, his messengers. They're there for, to, to, to do his bidding, to do what he says to do. This is a quotation um, from Psalm 104. Um, and he, he's just highlighting the different roles that they have. He'll, he'll say in verse 14 when we get there um, that ser, uh, angels were, were sent to minister to you and I to help us inherit salvation, which is a completely different role from the Son who bought salvation, who reigns forever. He says angels, they're, they're just servants. I mean, don't think of them as this, as, as awesome as they were in bringing us the law, Compared to Christ, I mean, they're just slaves. I mean, they're not even, they're, they're, they just do what he says to do. Verse 8, he says, But of the Son, so we're back to Jesus, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Um, here we have another quotation from the Psalms. This is from Psalm 45. Um, and he, he's saying here that the Son is the one who reigns with justice and peace. Is the one who brings this justice that God had promised creation. Um, the ridding of evil. He's the one who reigns and brings righteousness. His throne is forever. He brings the peace that creation longs for. Um, now this psalm, um, Psalm 45, is actually a wedding song sung to the king. Um, so if you go back and read it, it's real interesting. And also, you, you see this in the quotation... The psalm talks to the king. It's from a bride speaking to her king. And she calls him God. And you see that? You're, she's talking to him. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. She's speaking to the king. And then even in verse 9, she clarifies. But your God, but God, your God, do you see that? Hebrew scholars for a long time have questioned what is happening here. I mean, how do you make that mistake? How do you talk about a king and call them God? And Hebrews is, is very comfortable with that. The author is choosing this passage on purpose and saying, look, this king, this son, I mean, he's in the same realm as God. When you talk about God, you're talking about him. When you talk about him, you're talking about God. He's the one who reigns, who has uprightness, who brings in the kingdom. 
Verse 10, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. It's a quotation from Psalm 1 or 2. And it says that the sun reigns for all of eternity. This reigns forever and ever. And so everything else can change. Everything else can be changed out like a garment. But he remains the same. His years do not stop. We'll see this throughout Hebrews. The old, the old covenant, the, the old things of the past um, are seen as temporary in the New Testament. They weren't seen as meant to be lasting forever. But the son's reign, his message, his gospel is eternal. It has no end. There's not a, a part two coming. He's the complete and final revelation of God. And then finally in verse 13, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This is a quotation from Psalm 110. So we're through with the quotations now. I know it's hard to work through. Psalm 110, um, which if you'll notice, these quotations started with Psalm 2 and ended with Psalm 110. Last week, we saw two allusions to the Psalms in verses 1 through 4, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110. These are both very important Psalms to the author of Hebrews. Read them, know them. A lot of people have suggested that Psalm 110 is actually the basis for the whole book of Hebrews. He's going to come back to this Psalm over and over and over again. Some have thought it's a sermon on Psalm 110. I mean, he's building a sermon off of this Psalm. I might be stretching it. But he does come back to it over and over. And here he's quoting the part of the psalm where he looks at the king, God does, and says, sit at my right hand, sit in power and authority, and have your enemies be destroyed. You're my agent of ultimate victory. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed, quoting Psalm 110, is death. The Christ is God's agent of winning a victory over all that enslaves creation. And then in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? He says, The angels are servants sent for our good. Christ is the king. He's the son. He's the one who bought salvation. He's the one who accomplished God's kingdom. He's so much greater than the angels. And so if you can work through all of this and you can work through these Old Testament quotations and get the argument that he's making, he's just trying to set up a comparison. If these are the angels, this is Jesus. There's just no comparison. He's so much greater. And that leads him into really his main point in chapter 2. When he says, therefore, because of this, because of who Jesus is, because of how much greater he is than the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here we see his point, comparing the angels and the law to Jesus. Because he saw how serious that message was. And he saw how important it was to pay attention to it. You saw what happened if you ignored it. He says, what will happen if you ignore an even better message? What will happen if you ignore the most important message that God has given? This is therefore, we must pay much closer attention. He's worried that his, his readers are going to drift. 
this is the image he uses of, of like a sea. So you have a boat, you have a jet ski, whatever it is, um, floating in the lake, floating in the river, floating in the ocean, and it starts to drift away from the shore. It starts to drift away from the dock. This is what he's worried about. He's saying life is like a river. It's like a sea. It has these currents. And he's worried that his, his readers are going to get pulled away. They're going to get distracted. And he says, if, if you know how important this message is, pay attention to it. Listen to it. Focus on it. And he says, even if you are paying attention, pay much closer attention. Pay much closer attention. The truth is, all of us, I mean, we have so much more to learn about the gospel and to learn about what it means for our lives. I mean, I think we'll spend the rest of our lives learning about letting the gospel transform our entire lives. Letting the gospel reach this part of our lives and then this part of our lives and then this feeling and then this thought. Letting it work inside of us, understanding who Jesus is, what he's done. Father's saying it follows that because of who Jesus is, his message is of ultimate importance. I mean, it's the most important message when Jesus comes and saying, this is who God is. He's a God of grace and love and forgiveness. He's a God who demands your life, your loyalty, your allegiance, your worship. I mean, notice the angst here. We're going to see this a lot in Hebrews. Well, the author has this, this discontent inside of him. He has this unrest. I mean, he's worried. We'll see in, in chapters 5 and 6. He's worried about the people he's talking to, he's writing to. He's worried that they're going to drift. He's worried that they're going to fall away. I always think, like, I, I, I'm picky when it comes to speakers. Like, if I'm listening to someone speak, I, I just real, I'm quick to critique and, and be critical. Um, but I, I'll listen to anybody who has angst. I mean, I listen to anybody who just has this passion inside of them. And they want to shake things up. And they want to wake up somebody. And, and, and the author here, he's going, pay attention. He has this question. There's this haunting question that should echo in our souls. Should echo in our minds. How shall we escape if we ignore, if we neglect such a great salvation? He's... What's the plan? What do you think is going to happen if you ignore it? What do you think is going to happen if you let yourself get drifted away, float away? How shall we escape? I think he's going to say that, that history has shown it, has, has proven its power. It was declared the salvation at first by the Lord. So Jesus came and announced it. The kingdom is here. Forgiveness of sins is here. The kingdom is dawning. Victory is being won. It was attested to us by those who heard. We received it from those who witnessed it. God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So when the gospel message was presented, when Christ was doing his ministry, um, there were miracles, there were things happening, there were conversions, there were transformations. There were these signs that God was working and moving and being powerful. And by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. When there were these believers, they found this warm, personal challenging presence inside of them that they called the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. And to this day, the gospel's power, importance, supremacy is being played out if we just have eyes to see. If we just have eyes to see. I mean, it's, it's happening in America. It is. People's lives are being transformed. Communities are being changed. 
scriptures are being true when they say the gospel is the power of God to save. When you want to look overseas, Christianity is exploding. Nations are being changed. The Chinese church, oh my gosh. He's saying, look, I mean, look around. This message is important. It does things. And so he's asking his readers, how are you going to escape? How are you going to ignore this? I mean, how are you going to let yourself get, get drifted away, get floated away? What's your plan? How are, you, how are you expecting to get out alive? Pay attention, he says. Listen to this message. He's saying here that, that what God has spoken to us through Jesus demands our undivided attention. That we can't allow ourselves to get distracted off track. But we need to constantly be pressing in and applying and worshiping the God of the gospel, the God of the cross, what Jesus has done for us, in us, what he will do for us. Just yesterday I was, I was talking to a friend of mine, a brother in Christ, um, who we had a mutual friend a few years ago who's real on fire, um, who has recently fallen away from the faith. And so it's kind of a, a long process of you kind of see him drifting um, and, and just making bad choices. And he recently fell away from the faith. And then, so we were on the phone yesterday just kind of talking about it. And uh, when I can feel, I can feel the author's weight here. Like I can feel his angst. I can feel almost when he asks this question, like he's almost hoping there is a way. How will we escape? Like he's looking at someone that he loves and he's going, I mean, what's, what's the plan? How, how do you think you're going to get out of this? Like, I wish there was a way. I wish there was a way you could ignore this and be okay. But he's saying, if I'm just looking at the facts, I'm looking at who Jesus is, I'm looking at how history has played itself out, and I'm just not thinking there's a way that you can do whatever you want to do and be distracted your whole life and get out okay. He's saying, how are you going to escape? How are you going to survive if you ignore it? So the real simple question this morning is just, are we drifting? I mean, are we drifting away? Here's the scary thing about drifting. Sometimes you don't even know that you're drifting. Sometimes you open up your eyes and you're six miles from shore. You took a nap. And slowly the current just kind of drew you out. Are you drifting? Are you fading away? Are you not paying close enough attention? What message are you listening to? Have you decided that this message is worthy of all your attention, of all your effort? It's an important message. But all their messages, all the things spoken to you, vying for your attention, vying for your time, are secondary. Are you drifting away? What, what's your plan? How, how are you going to escape? So, just real quick, we'll, we'll do... Let me give you a couple litmus tests. Are you drifting away? Um... Your scripture life, reading the scriptures, and your prayer life. I mean, having times set apart where you are quiet and you pray by yourself, out loud in your head, with family, with friends, set apart times to pray. Scripture and prayer are like spiritual Ritalin. I mean, they have this way of focusing us, of focusing us on who God is and and what the reality of the world is around us. And without those two things, I, I think, I mean, that's a warning sign. 
It's going to be easy to get distracted. It's going to be easy to get sidetracked. Serving. Like there's a, a great truth that you're only as deep in your Christian faith as the last person that you served. As the last person that you sacrificed for, that you helped, that you loved truly. Or are we, like I'm just, are we just slowly drifting? And, and here's the thing, we all are. Every one of us. I am. I mean, there's just these ways where we, we let a different message get a hold of us, get our attention. We just get off track a little bit. And so we constantly need the scriptures to go, pay attention. I mean, do you know what this is? This isn't a, a basketball score. I mean, this isn't, this is the God of the universe saying, follow me, know me, love me, I'll heal you, I'll save you. How are you going to ignore that? What do you expect to happen if you do ignore that? And I just want to end with this question ringing. I mean, he asks a lot of questions in this passage. Which of the angels did he say this? Which of the angels has he ever said? Are, are the angels not just servants? And he ends it with this question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Can I give you his answer? You won't. Focus. Focus. I mean, so I mean, we talked last week. Jesus is not. I mean, he's, he's not your buddy down the street. I mean, I'm okay. He's your friend. I'm okay with. But he's he's definitely more than your friend. I mean, he's more than your your partying buddy. Or the gospel. This this good news. It's more than just an offer to make a little bit of money. It's more than this little pyramid scheme to make you more comfortable. It's the most important message that's ever been given. And you are on dangerous footing if you're not completely devoted to it. If you're not listening and pressing in and paying more and more attention each day. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for scriptures. Um, I thank you for the ability to um, work through even difficult ones that, that we may not understand at first. Um, I thank you that you have the scriptures. You have people in our lives. You have certain situations and events that remind us of how important you are and that remind us of our need to press into you, to know you, to follow you, to give you our undivided attention. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes up to ways that we can focus on you, to distractions that we need to get rid of, to messages that we're listening to, but they're not in the end important enough. They're not as important as, as the message. Father, we love you and we need you. We're just so thankful for your grace, thankful for your spirit inside of us. We're thankful for the evidence of the gospel around us. We just ask that you'd be with us, that you'd protect us, that you'd keep us from drifting. Speak so loudly that you're all that we could hear. We love you. We need you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.